We direct your attention now to the Word of God, to the book of Hebrews, the first half of the chapter 9. As we read this, pay attention to all of the particulars that have to do with the Old Testament worship system as it is prescribed by the Lord on the mountain, given to Moses. Moses inscripturated it and brought it into reality by the work of the craftsmen and the people of Israel in building the tabernacle, the tent that was in the wilderness of Sinai that God's people had, and all of the sacrificial and various ceremony connected with it. There are numerous references to that original tent. And tonight, today we'll talk about a more perfect tent. But hear now the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we now cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priest go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, but he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal covenant offered himself, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. covers quite a lot, doesn't he? Now I know most of you probably have studied in some detail the old tabernacle. The tabernacle in the wilderness that God gave his people there as they had been delivered out of 
Egyptian bondage and they were with Moses in the desert. The reason God took them into the wilderness was not to punish them. Although he did cause them to hunger and thirst that they may know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There was great purpose in the wilderness wandering, but the major purpose, if you'll read the book of Exodus with detail, was that they might come out and keep the Sabbaths and worship the Lord. So the prescription of worship was given, the details. The Lord said to Moses, do it exactly the way I prescribe to you on the mountain. The tabernacle had to be built with a precision. And the reason is that tabernacle, that tent that was stretched over those rods and staves and poles was a picture, a real good picture, a type of Christ. And it had to be accurate. It had to be precise to teach all that was known about Jesus Christ who would then come in his flesh as it were, his skin stretched over his bones in his incarnation, and he would become in his full humanity, fully God, and it would be represented by the tabernacle. Now, later on, of course, about 500 years later, Solomon built a temple, and the temple maintained the core structure just like the tabernacle. And it had, of course, porches and other things, Later on, when that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, they rebuilt it under Zerubbabel, was known as the second temple. It was rebuilt. It didn't have the glory of Solomon's temple at all. In fact, the old men cried when they saw the temple because it didn't have any of the glory of Solomon's temple. And yet the prophet said that the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the glory of the former temple. And the reason is that the glory of the latter temple, the temple that Zerubbabel built, was the temple that Christ came to. It was the place where Christ showed up, first as in his uh, uh, purification rituals that his mother went through, and then when as a child of 12 years old, and then later Jesus spent a lot of time teaching and preaching and ministering in and around the temple. That temple, that second temple, was greatly enhanced before Christ was even born by King Herod. And there were porches and there were towers and there were fortresses and residences and cattle stalls and all sorts of things. It was a marvelous multi-acre campus. But yet it still maintained that core, that little core that had a rectangular shape. And the end of it was the most holy place, perfectly cubed, just as wide as it was long and just as long and wide as it was tall, a perfect cube, which by the way reflects the dimensions. If you read the book of Revelation of of heaven, heaven has the same cubicle, three dimensions. And this was the structure that God, these were things were very earthly. They were very visible. In fact, the temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was, it was admired by people. The temple and the tabernacle were things that the people could always see. They could put their hands on. It was earthly. It was of this earth. But it taught greater principles. It taught greater truths. It pointed to someone and something much greater than itself. And that was an eternal covenant, an eternal priesthood, a great high priest that would be Christ. It pointed to Christ. And just as we look through all the things here that's mentioned about how the operations went, by the way, I've seen if the preachers are listening, big debate among pastors and preachers and theologians down through the years is who wrote the book of Hebrews? I will admit we really don't know. 
It's just hard to nail it down. So one argument is almost as good as another. But I've contended for years that it was written by Barnabas. And there are several good reasons. And one of the reasons is that Barnabas was a Levite. And this book virtually sketches the entire book of Leviticus in telling us about how the Levite structure was set up. You can just take that for what it's worth. That's a little extra thing I threw in here while I catch my breath to show you what I want to show you this morning. To just take, I just sat down and this week, just as I went through this, I thought, wow, we need to sketch out. We're talking about the perfect tent, the perfect tabernacle, the one that tabernacled among us, the one that came in the flesh, Christ. But what did that old raggedy temple and tabernacle and those old weak and beggarly elements and those shadows and those types, what did that tell us? that we needed to know so that we could understand Christ. The Bible says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The old covenant scriptures. The writings of Moses and the prophets that tell us the things we need to know about Christ. And so I just sketched out a handful of them here. Let me just go through it. First of all, as I just mentioned, the old covenant tent was all about law. Everything there was the law, it was the commandments, there were the priests, there were the sacrifices, there was the tabernacle itself. They had all kinds of regulations with respect to what's called baptisms, plural, Old Testament baptisms. There were washings and sprinklings and oblations that, went, that, that took place for various reasons. It had to do with food and drink and ritual and all kinds of coating that, that, that uh, dealt with the utensils and dealt with the, the um, uh, clothing that the priest and the high priest would wear in just an enormous amount of detail. This whole thing is to picture Christ. These are shadows and types, weak and beggarly elements. And so I sketched out a few of the things here. First of all, the primary thing is it teaches us that we have to, in order to have salvation, in order to be right with God, we have to have a mediator. Someone has to come between us and God. And that mediator in the Old Testament was the priest and the sacrificial system and the temple in which they ministered, the, the tent. There was need for a mediator. Jesus Christ is our mediator because he is the perfect mediator between God and man because he is both man and God. He understands everything about us. He knows how our hearts beat. He knows how our feet ache. He is human, thoroughly and completely. He knows our sorrows. He knows our pain. He knows our sufferings. He knows our temptations, our longings. Perfectly human, completely human, but also divine. The sinless, perfect, undefiled, separate from sinners, holy God in human flesh. And the system taught us we needed mediation. And we'll never get away from that. We can't do it ourselves. We can't approach God on our own. There's got to be a daysman betwixt us. Someone that will take our needs to God and someone that will bring God's blessings to us. And someone must mediate this and, and bring it to us and apply it to us and earn it for us and instruct us in it. And this, of course is mediation. We need an advocate. We need a comforter. We need a supporter. We need someone. We need someone. We need a savior. 
And we have one in Jesus Christ who is like us in every way in his humanity. And he is that mediator. You don't come to God without mediation. No one approaches the almighty God without mediation. And we have the perfect mediator. Another thing the sacrificial system taught us is that there is a need for blood. A lot of people don't like this notion, but it is. And it's even in pagan cultures have held on to the, the, the primitive idea that there's somehow it is blood that satisfies the deity. And that's a correct notion. God doesn't disabuse us of that notion at all. There's no such thing as a bloodless religion. In order for it to be efficacious, there must be the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Jesus Christ is the one who shed his blood. And he is the one who makes the most of his blood. When he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, drink it. You can't get away from blood atonement. And the sacrificial system certainly taught us that. Every day, day by day, week in and week out, in the outer court they ministered. They slaughtered animals one after another for various reasons, various rituals to the priest all the time. But once a year, just once a year, the high priest and the high priest only would go into the Holy of Holies. And there he would bring the blood of the sacrifice. First, the blood of a bull or a calf for himself and his family. Then he would bring a blood of a goat slaughtered for the sins of the people. And so we were taught that it's the shedding of the blood. It's the shedding of the blood that has the immense significance. That's why we preach a crucified Christ. And this tying into it was teaching us another principle that what we need in our salvation and in our redemption is a covering that is a kafar. And the covering is not so much that it covers us like a blanket would cover a couch or a bed, but we're covered more like a debt is covered. If I have a debt that I owe and someone comes up to me and says, I'll cover that, and they pay that debt. Suppose someone comes up to the restaurant, and you're welcome to do this anytime you want to when I'm eating, and pick up the check and say, I'll cover this. There's an obligation. There's a debt that must be met. And that's the word kafar, the word covering, the word we use that's translated atonement. There's a covering. There's no such thing as any kind of salvation. Even the first priest himself, Adam, when he sinned, knew he had to cover something. And he covered himself and his bride with fig leaves. An inadequate covering, but at least the angst was there knowing that something must be covered. Something must be atoned. And the instinct is to do it according to blood covenant. And that's what God was teaching us, that there must be this, this covering. Another, in blending into that, it's the idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice means, um, what does it mean in the Greek? It means sacrifice. It means giving something that's costly. And it always required the firstling of the flock. Oh, wasn't that, you know, beautiful when your firstborn child is born? You think, wow, it's just nothing like the firstborn child. I'm sorry, second and thirdborns, but that firstborn child. And that's what God required of Israel, the firstborn child. 
of every womb belonged to the Lord. Now they could redeem that child from that obligation and it was transferred over to the Levites and there's a lot of technical legal stuff involved. You can read about it in the Old Testament, but it's costly. What does salvation cost you? It cost you your firstborn. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Salvation is costly. It, the firstling of the flock, the, the first fruits of the field. You go out and you, you harvest an orchard or you harvest a field and there's a great harvest and you think, all right, we're going to have something to eat. No, you're not. You're going to take that first fruit and take it and give it to the Lord. And the priest is going to eat it. And some of it's going to be burned up and it's going to be sacrificed. And salvation is costly. I'm telling you, we have a lot of grace preaching in our culture today. But we don't hear much costly grace. You don't have amazing grace without extravagant sacrifice and costliness on the part. It cost the omnipotent God his own dear son. And I'm telling you that if I were God, I wouldn't have done it. I've got one son, one only son, and I wouldn't sacrifice him for anybody in this room ever for any reason. That's the difference God did because he loved us that much. And the, the Old Testament sacrifice was, a system was teaching of this costliness. Also you find in the Old Testament sacrificial system there as it's performed in the tent, you find purity. My goodness, there's cleansing from defilements of all kinds. The, they have what was called the holiness code. And even the lambs that were brought must have been without spot and without blemish. Nothing could come into the presence of God with one single micron of germ on it it had to be pure before the Lord and so God is teaching us holiness and Jesus Christ of course fulfills that completely because he was the sinless son of God in his life and he brings that purity and that that cleansing from all defilement to the true tent the true tabernacle that is the presence of God himself in heaven. Here's something that the Old Testament sacrificial system taught us. It taught us this, the basic principle of substitution. That's this notion that one person or thing could legally be sacrificed for another. Now this is a reckoning in God's own economy. This is God's laws. This is God's transaction. This is the way God does business. He accepts the sacrifice of one in place of another. And that's what the sacrificial system taught us, is that the, the blood of the bull or the turtle dove or the, or, the, or the goat could be offered in place of the sins of the people. And so it came down to the notion that was stated even ironically by the high priest at Jesus' trial, that it is proper that one man die for the people. And that's exactly what you have. It's vicarious. It's one dies for another. One dies instead of the other. One dies in the place of the other. And our salvation is substitutionary. It's not what you did. It's what he did. But it is accounted to you. You get the credit for it. And that's the way God reckons. He accounts. That's the way God imputes salvation. And the Old Testament sacrificial system taught us this great principle of substitution. It also taught us the holiness of place. 
Remember that's mentioned several times in our text about the place. It's important that the place of offering be exactly right. It had to be a holy place, a designated place. God didn't just say, I tell you what, you just offer sacrifices wherever you want to. You read the history and every shrine in the Old Testament where sacrifice was offered had a significance that related it to Almighty God. And it's certainly true in that very system that God himself pronounced. And God even named the place not only in the Holy of Holies for the sacrifice, but he designated the place in Jerusalem. He said, you make it finally to the city that I will put my name on. And that city, of course, is the Jerusalem. By the way, we get to the New Testament spiritual understanding of all these wonderful things. We find that the New Jerusalem is the church, and God has put His name on His church. That's exactly what you have in the holy place. It is sacred place. It is the sacrifice. And it was important that the place be outside the camp. We'll deal with this concept a little more in Hebrews later when he talks about the Lord being sacrificed outside the camp. There was a place for the blood, and it was out on Golgotha's hill. But the presentation of the atonement in the blood of Christ was in the true temple, the holy tabernacle that is the presence of God in heaven itself. Well, we must hurry on. There are a couple, three more. Propitiation. That's a big word. We throw it around some, but that really means appeasement. Sacrifice always has in it the idea of your, the God is angry. God is wrath. God is, is, is fire, and, and he is a, a judgmental uh, person. And that's true. According to a righteous and a pure judgment, God is. But he can be placated. He can be satisfied. He can be appeased. But the only thing that will do it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because God's wrath has been placated. God has been appeased. Propitiation has taken place. One of the things then that the sacrificial system also teaches us is a concept of once for all. And he does this by offering repeated sacrifices. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament were commanded by God, expected by God for the people to perform. The people did it in faith and by offering those sacrifices, they were putting their faith in God. They were obeying God. They were following him as far as he had led them. But let me tell you the truth. And the prophets begin to talk about it even later in Israel's history, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. They just can't do it. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. There was a need, there was a, there was a fecklessness and an incompleteness and a crying out. The bloods of the bulls and the goats would cry out for more, for a righteous and once for all atonement. And this, of course, was fulfilled completely in Jesus Christ. An atonement that actually saves. Atonement that when it is offered, it could be said, it is finished. And that's what that word finished means, among many things. It's a rich word in the language, and it is finished. That word means a debt has been paid. A war has been won. A treaty has been signed. 
A battle has been ended. Restoration has been completed. It is finished. And there needed to be a once for all. And instead of a feckless series of sacrifices, there was an efficacious single sacrifice. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what does this all amount to? Paul tells us in Galatians, he gives us kind of the summary of it all. All of these lessons, these 10 lessons that I've just put before you are all schoolmasters, tutors, textbooks, instruction manuals to lead us to Christ. All of this pointed to Christ. All the blood sacrifice in the right place, done the right way, by the right person, with all the meaning and with all of the, the understanding would point us repeatedly to Christ. And that's all I want to do today. That's really all I want to do. I've said all this to say this. When you come to Christ, when you trust Him, when you confess your sins, when you believe in Him, when you hear his voice saying, come, follow me. When you hear him say, take up my yoke, learn of me. When you hear him say, take up your cross. Your conscience, your conscience will be the key. Bring your guilt. Bring your fecklessness. Your helplessness to him and when you do you will learn that he has taken care of everything he has taken care of he's covered the tab he is a wonderful savior I commend him I tell you, you must come to him. There is none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. None other than the name of Jesus. Don't leave here this morning with your still, heavy, conflicted, condemning conscience. Have your conscience, as the text says here, have it purged to serve the true and the living God.